We'd like to read our scripture lessons today. Our first text is from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. One little verse. Listen here to God's word. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. Amen. Our main text is from Jeremiah chapter 26, selected verses, which means that uh, you really can't follow along. I'm going to skip through and get through the whole chapter. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3, 8 through 9, 11 through 15, and 20 through 26. But just, just sit back and listen to it. It's about Jeremiah speaking to the people, the word of the Lord in the temple, their response, his response, some other things that happened, and then a little coda at the end where uh, we see another guy appear as well. Listen here to God's word. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may repent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds." When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and the people seized him, saying, You must die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house will be like Shiloh, and this city will be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered about Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets spoke to the officials and to all the people, saying, A death sentence for this man. For he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard in your hearing. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and to all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your deeds, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will change his mind about the misfortune which he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as is good and right in your sight, Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood on yourselves and on this city and on its inhabitants, for truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. Indeed, there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim, and he prophesied against the city and against the land words similar to all those of Jeremiah. When King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men and all the officials heard his words, then the king sought to put him to death, but Uriah heard it, and he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt, that is Elnathan, the son of Achbor, and certain men with him went into Egypt, and they brought Uriah from Egypt and led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword and cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that he was not given into the hands of the people to put him to death. <coughs> Amen. And then our New Testament text is from Acts chapter 12, <coughs> the first 12 verses. <coughs> this is a fairly familiar passage. It's where Herod's on a rampage. He takes 
the apostle James, the brother of John, and executes him, and has Peter there. <clears throat> He's going to execute him, but things don't turn out that way. So listen here to God's word. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he, that is Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was made, being made fervently by the church of God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that this was being, that this was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Amen. We'll take just a few moments to bow our heads and silently meditate upon God's word, which we've read. Well, Father, we are here, <clears throat> gathered in Jesus' name, to worship you, to honor you, but Lord, also to receive from you. For we confess our poverty, our need, that we need you, we want you uh, to feed our souls, to feed our minds, to feed our spirits, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. So, Lord God, come, minister to us in your fullness. Let us be raised up in the light of your knowledge and walk therein. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, why did I include that passage from Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15? In today's readings, it seems sort of an anomaly with the other two passages. Well, it's because what was happening in Jeremiah's day, and I would suggest in our day as well, is exactly what Proverbs 17, 15 talks about, where people and culture are uh, approving what's wrong and disapproving what's right. It says all, anything like that is an abomination to the Lord. And so it's a, it's a good commentary to remind ourselves that it doesn't always go the way you want, and sometimes people do wicked things, but that doesn't mean that it's right. Now, let's look at our texts here, uh, see how chapter 26 functions in Jeremiah. Uh, the full prophecy that Jeremiah gave is actually in chapter 7. So uh, you'll find there the whole text of what he said, not the whole text, but the, the more complete text of what he said in his sermon or prophecy there in the court of the temple. And that's one of the things that makes the book of Jeremiah frustrating and challenging. It's all chopped up. It's rearranging. And we don't know why. It could be because there was a segment that went with the people to Babylon that was sent to them. And there was others that went with the people down to Egypt there and they got different traditions. We don't know. 
uh, but it makes it a challenge. Regardless of how chopped up it is, though, the teaching or the portrait is clear. Jeremiah has a word from God, and the word demands a response. You cannot hear Jeremiah and be neutral. It demands a response. And the portrait painted here, the facts that are said, says the response is negative. Very negative. How negative? You must die. I'd say that's pretty negative, wouldn't you? <laughs> you must die. That's how negative the response was. Now, here are the gritty details of that. God rebukes the society and the people via Jeremiah. He has him do it in the temple area. Well, why in the world does he have it do it there than someplace else? A couple of reasons. One, that's where people will come and gather. That's a, a good meeting place. They, you know, you, you didn't have, you couldn't sit down a tweet or something like that. So they'd be there. But also it's because the people thought the temple was like their security, their assurance. This is God's temple and nothing bad can ever happen to us because this is God's temple. His presence in here and it's indestructible. No foreign power can touch us. God is there. But the word of the Lord was what? Would you show up, uh, Andy, the first one there from Jeremiah 7, verse uh, There we are. Here's what he says in that temple sermon or prophecy. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Uh, then, the the should be then, that's my error. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. You see, they were doing all these wicked things, things that, that they knew they shouldn't do, but they thought it was all right because they had the temple there. They could go to the temple and be okay. And that's the very thing that Jeremiah, God through Jeremiah, denounces, confronts them with, says, you're, look at your behavior, look at what you're doing, and then you say you're the people of the Lord, and you think that, that I will not bring judgment on you. Wrong idea. That's good. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Jeremiah wasn't the only one doing this. We read about how Uriah also was there. There may have been more. We don't know. Now, Jeremiah and Uriah were not court priests or prophets. There were court priests and prophets, and uh, uh, they were more or less uh, government functionaries. They were, their job was to pump up and promote and agree with and go along with all that the government did. Uh, so Jeremiah and Uriah were not like that. They weren't syndicated columnists. They weren't the editors of the Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Times that did all that. They had a, a word from God that confronted the culture where they were. And it was a counter-cultural message. You talk about counter-cultural, those guys were counter-cultural. They had a message of impending judgment. And the example that's used is that of Shiloh. Now Shiloh is in the northern kingdom. And Shiloh had been wiped out by the Assyrians 110 years earlier. Uh, when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, just wiped out Shiloh, made it a devastation. And he's saying, this Jerusalem's going to be just like that because of all the things that are going on, and you guys have no, no sense of shame, no sense of repentance about it at all. Uh, 
And yet in the midst of that cry of judgment, that pronouncement there, it's the mercy and goodness of God. Because God calls them to repentance. God calls them to turn from your ways and come back. Come on, it's not too late. I can change my mind about what I purpose to do to you. Come on back. So in the midst of this confrontation, this judgment that falls on them, this, hear what they say, is God's mercy, His love, reaching out saying, come on, come on, come on back, change your ways. Uh, God will forgive. However, the people would have none of it. Andy, how about this next passage? Jeremiah 7, 24. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked, now listen to this, they walked in their own counsels and in the stubbornness of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. That is, they kept getting worse (laughs) rather than better. Thank you. Uh, That was their response to the word of the Lord. It came to the the, the word of, (coughs) of judgment, but the word of mercy. Some positive things came out of it. Uh, eventually the people uh, say, well, you know what? We, we really shouldn't kill. People say this, not the officials. Uh, they say, we really shouldn't kill uh, Jeremiah because we remember that Micah, remember the prophet Micah? He prophesied in the days of Hezekiah the same thing, judgment. And Hezekiah didn't kill him. And here we still are. So let's be like Hezekiah and let's not kill Jeremiah. And uh, God delivered them then, maybe he'll deliver us now. So let's be like them, like they were back 110 years ago, and let's let Jeremiah live. But they forgot the most important part. Hezekiah and the people repented. They turned from what they had been doing and went another way. They forgot that part entirely. So they listened to the wrong prophets. They listened to the court prophets, to the cultural prophets, not to Jeremiah, not to Uriah, not to the other ones. Always we must decide who we will believe. What does this look like in our culture, in our times? I would suggest that we're sliding, free falling, like Israel of old. We're not going forward, but we're going backward. I'd like to read something here that might describe how that is. As our culture has grown more secular, certain forms of immorality have become more common in the public eye, which has made societal judgments against them wane, that is to to diminish, which has dulled our consciences to the guilt that those sins bring, which makes those sins far more tempting which makes us more likely to commit them, which makes it more difficult to imagine living without them, which makes God seem like the unreasonable one when he calls us away from those sins. Did you follow that? Thinking, that's there. And so the writer says, here we see the failure of American Christianity. In order to make God's law seem more reasonable, congregations refrain from condemning the sins embraced by the secular culture, which gives the secular culture more influence over us which makes whatever bits of God's word what seemed reasonable a few minutes ago now seem unreasonable, which makes congregations refrain from condemning the next batch of sins, 
We've made it an implausible part of our life, and so on and so forth. Those who won't speak against, who wouldn't speak against sin A yesterday, won't speak against sin double A today, and they won't speak against sin triple A tomorrow. Follow that? Hey, it's good. How then, he says, do we break this vicious cycle? How do we convince the prodigal sons that they, not God, are the ones at fault? The answer is simple. We ditch American Christianity in favor of the Orthodox version. Now, the writer who writes this, he's writing in response to an article that another guy had written talking about a, the, some great large churches in America, talks specifically about a, a Methodist church out in Kansas that has thousands of members and how the pastor there has said that, well, you know, we can't speak out against fornication, we can't speak out against uh, same-sex marriage and things like that because we have some folks here that'd be offensive to. So we just need to, to make sure we present Jesus and sort of let those things slide. So this is a response to that. How then do we break this vicious cycle? How do we convince the prodigal sons that they, not God, are the ones at fault? The answer is simple. Read it again. We ditch American Christianity in favor of the Orthodox version. But in order to believe that Christ is your Savior, you have to believe that He has saved you from something, which is something sinners never understand if the church keeps telling them that God, well, say, say God, he pulls on a commercial here. Have you ever seen this, this commercial about Snickers? There's these bad people and they're all <laughs> biting one and then they eat a Snickers and they become who they really are. They're true and good people. Remember, you ever seen that commercial? You have? Oh my goodness, you guys are watching television. So he says, you know, whatever the, the congregation says, now God, you're getting on all these people about this stuff. Go eat a Snickers and become a good and loving God like you're supposed to be. He's acting too Old testament it says. Well, if we want to bring the lost, the wounded, and the marginalized into the kingdom of God, therefore the best thing we can do for them is to make the severity of God's law perfectly clear to them. As God demonstrated in the days of Noah and Abraham, God does not lose even 1% of His wrath just because we have lost, 99% of us have lost interest in avoiding His wrath. That doesn't make His wrath go away. No matter how unreasonable you find his jots and tittles, quite simply, if you want eternal life, God does not require you to be approximately as righteous as the average person around you. He doesn't even require you to be as righteous as the holiest person around you. He requires you to be as righteous as he is. That's true. We've talked that many times here. How good do you have to be to get into heaven? 99%, 51%? No, none of those. 100%. Right? He goes on, but all of us have failed to do this. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us deserve nothing from God but our condemnation. Yet, out of His undying love, God sent His only begotten Son to die for us. Out of His love for sinners, God sent Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to bear our sins and declare that His worthiness is now ours. We get His righteousness transferred to us and that we're now worthy of eternal life because of this. Isn't that good? That was written by a Lutheran. Can you believe that? (laughs) Hard to believe, Harry. So how about this one and that one? How this works out? God's providence experienced. How do Jeremiah and Uriah live this out? Both live faithfully. They do their respective ministries. Uriah is not to be reproached for fleeing into Egypt. He did what was wise and good and appropriate. 
He wasn't worse or less faithful or less brave than Jeremiah. That's why we read Acts chapter 12. Why did James get killed and executed and Peter didn't? Why didn't God deliver James like he delivered Peter? By the way, Peter then did go off and run away and hide a while. You know that. Well, the answer is simply this. God's call. God's call on each of their lives. God has a call on our lives that's different. So we have to follow it. You know, it's, I can't be just like Bill Tate. Bill Tate can't just be like me. You can't be like the person next to you. God has a call on your life. Be faithful therein. Jeremiah, it tells us in the last verse we read, was protected by Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Now, you may remember Shaphan from a few weeks back. We read about uh, Josiah, the good king. He was the advisor there who helped find the book of the law that had been hidden in the temple. Uh, Josiah is the king of repentance and revival, repentance and renewal. He had two sons that are mentioned here, Ahikam, who we read about here, and another one, Gemariah, who we're going to hear about down the road. This family, this family of Ahikam and Shaphan, they were a faithful family devoted to God and to their land and to their people, and God used them for good. Now, there's some applications for us. Personally, you must choose whom you'll believe and whom you'll follow, trusting that God will work things out as you follow Him faithfully. And we can't determine what that will be. Why does one get executed and one get set free? I was reading recently about the 20 martyrs, 21 martyrs over in, in Libya, remember who got their heads cut off, the Coptic martyrs? Why them and why not us? Or why them and not someone else? That's God's call, that's God's choice. We think of the family here, why should their child get ill and not my child? Well, that's God's call. And we would that everyone were, were well and whole, but it's not our call. It's God's, right? So we have to make sure we know who we're listening to. So their, their testimony is a wonderful testimony. You can get mad and shake your fist at God. God, how dare you? All that. No, God is always God. He's our Father. He cares for us. He knows what's best. He'll give us grace. Sufficient. But let's listen and hear him. Uh, the church, we must choose to follow Christ, come what may. We don't know what laws are coming down. We don't know what kind of temptations are going to be in a wider culture around us. But we must be faithful to follow Christ, to follow the Bible, to teach it in its fullness, in its application to personal life, to family life, to national life, to universal life. Come what may. Nationally, can we be turned from our wicked ways? I said before, we're in free fall now. We're not just on a slippery slope, we're on free fall. Yes, we can. The Lord's hand is not so short that He cannot save, but it will require a work of God. He has to work by His Spirit. And He will use faithful individuals and faithful families in the midst of that, should He choose to do that. Just like He's using Ahikam, the son of Shaphim, here. He'll use 
faithful families and people. Has history ever been turned before like this? Well, yes, it has. On occasion, not that often. England experienced this under the Wesleyan revival, the Whitfieldian revival. Brought back from the brink. France didn't experience that, and they had the, the reign of terror that's associated with that. We don't know the outcome of our, our, of our land, but our land is in a very, very bad place, just so you know. We don't think it's good. We think it's bad. Where we are, what we're doing, what we've, what we've assimilated, what, we've, what the, the writer here said we've grown accustomed to is bad. And God confronts us just like Jeremiah confronted the people there in his day. He said, look, you need to turn and amend your ways or else. That's where we are. So we don't know how it's going to turn out. But we do know God. And we're confident that he will deal with us faithfully. And we pray that he'll give us grace to live faithfully and thankfully, whether we're Jeremiah or Uriah. You follow that? Whether we're Jeremiah who gets hit and it's okay, or whether we're Uriah who gets his head chopped off. Whether we're Peter or whether we're James. Let's live under God's rule. Let's get, live for God's glory and let's see what he will do. Amen.